Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer, and Ryan White is the live stream producer, and we are live streaming tonight on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. If you haven't already done so, please make sure to hit that sub button. The FBI's phony investigation and attempted coup of President Trump. This from the uh, New York Post. Connecticut U.S. Attorney John Durham is not expected to release the findings of his review of the FBI's Russia probe until after the November 3rd election, which is, of course, a bitter disappointment to Republicans who believe um, revelations in a report would galvanize support for President Trump. Attorney General William Barr has communicated the news to Republicans on Capitol Hill, dashing hopes of a bombshell report that would validate Trump's contention he was smeared as a Russian colluder by dirty cops and powerful Democrats. A Trump administration source told The Post that if there's a chance people can be prosecuted, we can't put out a report before that happens, end quote. The administration source said there remains the possibility of uh, additional indictments. In August, Durham announced former FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith would plead guilty to falsifying records to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Trump said Friday he's very upset about the delay. He says, I think it's a disgrace. It's an embarrassment. Uh, That was uh, told to radio host Rush Limbaugh. And then there is this development, the latest declassification from Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe that the CIA alerted the FBI in September 2016 that there was intelligence showing the Russians believed Hillary Clinton was, quote, stirring up, end quote, a false collusion narrative to vilify Donald Trump. Between July 2016 and May 2017, the CIA repeatedly warned the FBI that the Russian, that the Russia collusion narrative spun by Christopher Steele's dossier was a combination of political dirty trick uh, by Team Clinton and targeted Russian disinformation. In rapid succession, the CIA alerted the Crossfire Hurricane team that Russia knew by July 2016 that Clinton had a research operation led by Steele and by fall 2016 had fed Steele disinformation that Steele's dossier contaminated demonstrably false information according to declassified footnotes from a Justice Department Inspector General's investigation. Likewise, America's premier spy agency also warned America's premier law enforcement agency it was focused on the wrong guy in Trump advisor Carter Page. CIA told FBI that Page was a U.S. intelligent asset, not a Russian stooge. The FBI uh, hid that crucial information. That from the FISA court, in one instance, even falsifying a document. And yet, 
that the FBI proceeded to sustain an investigation into Trump-Russia collusion that lacked any evidence to justify its existence. The officials told just the news. In the process, agents secured a, a year's worth of surveillance targeting Page and the Trump inner circle that yielded no proof of collusion. And we're going to get into both of these developments and much more over the next two hours as we discuss Operation Crossfire Hurricane, the Steele dossier, the phony Russian collusion story that was hammered day in and day out by the mainstream media for nearly four years, the FISA court, which of course authorized the spying on members of Trump's uh, campaign team and his transition team. And here to discuss is John O'Connor. John is an experienced trial lawyer practicing law in San Francisco. He's tried cases in state and federal court throughout the country. He served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California, representing the United States in both criminal and civil cases. Among his interesting assignments have been representing Coach Don Nelson in litigation with Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban and representing Mark Felt, regarding the revelation of his identity as Deep Throat, the Watergate whistleblower. John is the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. John O'Connor, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Richard, I'm great. Great to have you with us. So, I'm calling it a phony investigation, perhaps even a coup attempt. I think the evidence is certainly now quite clear that it was a phony investigation or unwarranted, to say the least. What say you? Is that a fair characterization or was the FBI, was it a simply an, an honest mistake? Well, I think you're even kind to them, Richard, when you say it was unwarranted. Yes, it was unwarranted, but sometimes an unwarranted investigation can be the result of stupidity of a witness you believe uh, in good faith turns out not to be there. Every prosecutor's had to really evaluate his witnesses, and sometimes you get stuck if you're not vigilant enough. Part of your job as a lawyer, whether it's civil law or criminal law, is to figure out whether your own witnesses and your own clients are telling the truth, because you really can't put on a good case unless they are, and uh, you're just going to get sideswiped later on if you care about winning the case. But in this case, if you just care about creating allegations, then perhaps the more falsity, the better. There is no way to look at this, and I think we'll talk about this for the next couple hours, is there's no way to look at this and conclude that all this was part of an honest mistake or honest mistakes. First of all, even if you give the FBI every benefit of the doubt, there are so many honest mistakes that it's almost impossible to believe so many. It just doesn't happen like that. But there is so much here that speaks of deliberate, deliberate falsification of a narrative of a heinous type. Here we are right now, four years. We're we're past four years of the first publication of these scurrilous allegations. They're terrible. They're really accusing Trump, being a traitor, really, of treason. You know, one of our Worst enemies, most uh, certainly a geographical, uh, geopolitical foe. And he's accused of colluding, of subverting our election procedures. I mean, everything that is being said is horrendous. And yet, it is not only untrue, but as we'll discuss tonight, 
It was made up out of whole cloth. The FBI knew it and was part of it. actively, actively helped encourage the falsity, hid the truth, which is a type of falsity you can't conceal. That's a type of fraud or falsity. Of course, Hillary Clinton's campaign knew it, too. That's obvious. And what's worse is that both of them together, and I'm going to say this advisedly, the only inference that you can gain from the evidence is that the two of them, the FBI and Hillary, were not only working together, the campaign, and funded by the White House. White House had to approve the funding from the DNC. But they knowingly and willingly used Russian spies. Think about that. They knowingly and willingly used people that were spies or close to Putin or close to intelligence sources. And clearly, it had to be disinformation. So let me set the stage for the listeners. Let's think about this. There can be cases in which a foreign government sends you information or you overhear it and you assess that, well, no, might be true. Uh, just because it might be intentionally given to you by another intelligence agency. Like, for instance, somebody might tell me, by the way, Richard Surratt is the biggest drug smuggler between Canada and the United States. That may be true. The intelligence agency may be telling you this because for some reason he wanted us to know. So just because another intelligence agency tells you that or an investigator tells you that doesn't make it false. But let's think about what happened here, and I'll go to the Steele dossier. We have a lot preceding the Steele dossier uh, for the narrative to unfold, but let's go to the Steele dossier and Steele's network. Let's think about this a minute. Who is Christopher Steele? And, of course, for your viewers, Christopher Steele had the dossier upon which the FISA warrants were gained, upon which the Trump campaign was spied on for over a year. And so everything relied on Christopher Steele and his reports. Now, who is Christopher Steele? Well, he's a former British intelligence agent. But one of the things that people haven't talked about is that his main client, he's in the private business like a lot of us are. He's a contractor with a company called Orbis. And his big client for several years had been a guy named Oleg Deripaska. Oleg Deripaska is the aluminum oligarch of Russia. And Oleg had been trying to get into America for various reasons, I don't know, business reasons, whatever, been trying to smooth himself over and make himself look like the good oligarch, sort of a PR campaign. But everybody would tell you that Oleg Deripaska is very close to the right hand of Vladimir Putin. If Deripaska, there's not an inch between them. In fact, he wouldn't be alive if there was an inch between them. And so whatever he does or says has the approval of Vladimir Putin. Now, Christopher Steele's bread and butter for years has been Oleg Deripaska. He has done, and this is something you don't see printed by our wonderful media, but he'd done something between 100 and 200. They call them O reports because they're from Orbis, but he'd done 100 to 200 reports on the status of Russia and Ukraine matters. And he did this really to help out Deripaska as he was trying to get a visa, get accepted in the United States. Uh, There are other interests they have in uh, uh, Russia had in Ukraine relationships, and who knows what Deripaska had to do with Ukraine. 
Uh, also recall that Deripaska and Paul Manafort were very close together and had a lot of Ukrainian dealings. So he reported on Ukraine and Russia, the two big things that were going on in 2016, Ukraine and Russia. So Deripaska is his big client. All right. Uh, now, not in this case, he wasn't, supposedly, but but he is really Christopher Steele. Christopher Steele's got a hat on that said, my man is a Russian oligarch. Uh, okay. Who did Christopher Steele rely on on his team? One of the things that the FBI touted when they went to the FISA court was that, yes, Christopher Steele was not a witness to these things. But we are satisfied, the FBI is satisfied, that his team of subsources, uh, sources and subsources, that is to say he had one primary subsource, the person that he relied on, that subsource in turn had sources. So you could call them sub-subsources. But he, the FBI, and it's replete in all the reports, was bragging almost that, uh, gee, we think Steele is reliable. We've dealt with Steele before. Then the question came up, what about the reliability of his subsource network, since Steele doesn't know anything firsthand? And the answer was, gee, these people are all in a position to know. Now, that's an important thing to do. I mean, if, you, if you're a lawyer and you want to know about a car wreck, you hope that your witness was there to see it. Was he in a position to know and see the car wreck? Sir, that's important. But the second part of it is, is that person in a position to know reliable? And are they playing you? And do they have a reason to falsify? Well, okay, now who were his subsources? If they're in a position to know, let's just think this out. I'm going slow here because I think in today's modern age, we do not take enough time for the jury to just think about facts and their inferences because they speak very loudly here. The subsources for Steel. The primary subsource was a guy named Igor Danchenko. And Igor Danchenko, I'm not making this up, it's in the FBI's files. When he was around in the United States from 2009 to 2011, the assessment was he was a Russian spy. Now, he left the country, so they quit investigating him. But the assessment was he was probably a spy. But they quit monitoring him because he left the country. So he's the primary subsource for Steel. Then below him are other people, quote, in a position to know. Even Danchenko did not claim to have, you know, first-hand knowledge. But those people were people in the Kremlin, primarily. Now, let's think about this. As I said before, sometimes this, this information from another place can be true. Now, in this case, let's think about the information that was provided. The information that was provided through these sources and subsources was that Putin and Trump were conspiring to change the election. Now, let's say if that's true, and you're Vladimir Putin, would you want that out? You know, would if, if I was conspiring with you to haul drugs across the border, would I want the guy sitting next to me to say that? No. And if you do that in the Kremlin, your life expectancy is about 36 hours. And you ought to check your Cheerios to see if there's polonium-210 in it because your face is going to fall <laughs> off. You know? So do you want your face to stay on or do you want to do what Putin tells you to do? Now, in this reporting, which I laughed at when I first saw the Steele dossier, it's like, wait a second. 
Steele picks up the phone or his primary subsource picks up the phone and calls the Kremlin and say, hey, what's up? Oh, a worldwide conspiracy between the United States and Russia that can affect United States uh, relationships and maybe start a nuclear war. Sure. Yeah, I, I believe that. Now, let's think about that. Would Putin want that out? How long would you last on this earth if you unveiled a conspiracy between Putin and Trump? If you're in a, quote, position to know, as the FBI averse under penalty of perjury to the FISA court and to Horowitz, the IG, who later on did his report in very even, unsensational tones that won't have any of the inferences that I'm going to bring today, but in very even and unsensational tones, he said yes. The FBI said these sources were in a position to know. Well, that means they were down the hall from Putin. That's all. They had to have enough knowledge from Putin to know about this. Now, let's just stop right there. Is it reasonable to believe that? Is it even past the laugh test, the smell test, the name your test? It is so incredible that it's comic book. Now, why would the FBI do this? We'll talk about that, but it's only because they wanted that disinformation. And actually, you could say they're working directly with Putin, really. <laughs> I hate to say that, but I'm not saying they talked to Putin. But by willingly taking this story that they know is false, and actually they're asking these subsources to do it. Uh, now, uh, here's what Steele told Kathleen Kavalek of the State Department, I think it's in late October, maybe it's in November of 2016, still named Danchenko's key sources below him. And two of them were guys that I call them the Vladislavs, Vladislav Trubnikov and Vladislav Surkov. One of them is, I think Surkov is like Putin's Rasputin. I mean, he's sitting right next to him. He knows everything. Trubnikov is a former big-time spy. I think he's a foreign ministry guy. And as they say, once you're a spy, you never leave in Russia. You never leave and go off and be a farmer. You're a spy for life. So Trubnikov knows everything. Surkov knows everything. And they're two of his subsources. The third subsource that gives this a little bit of American twist is a guy named Sergei Million, who's a Russian both a Russian citizen and an American citizen living in the Queens, who claims to know both about the Kremlin, because he's really tied in, he says, to the Kremlin and intelligence people, and also to the United States. He's really tied into the Trump campaign, and he describes this relationship where uh, Putin's going to give us emails and uh, dirt on Hillary, and we're going to help him out with Ukraine and our I'm trying to think of the campaign platform on Ukraine and not give Ukraine a lot of weapons and that kind of thing. So there's going to be this well-developed conspiracy of cooperation. John, I'm just going to jump in because we've got to step away for a brief moment and uh, we'll come back and pick things up on the other side with John O'Connor, the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, his client, and covered up Watergate and began today's partisan advocacy journalism as we unpack the Steele dossier here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. So, John, I just want to back up because before the Steele dossier really got rolling, there was... 
a bunch of never-Trumpers, Republicans at the Washington Beacon. This is in late 2015, Glenn Simpson. They were the ones that originally funded or hired GPS Fusion. And a lot of that sort of Russiagate conspiracy seemed to begin, they were accusing Trump of wanting to build a tower in Moscow before and even during the election uh, campaign, seeking to involve the president's son, Don Jr., And the key player in that scheme was a guy by the name of Felix Sater. And he was presented as this Russian go-between. Is that where it sort of begins prior to Christopher Steele writing his 17 reports, which sort of formed the basis of the Steele dossier, with wanting to build this tower in Moscow? Well, Richard, what I'd say is it appears that way, but it's not really, if I can explain. And you're correct that... Comey, for example, has always said this whole thing started with the free beacon. And basically, there are a lot of never-Trumpers who wanted to get dirt on Trump. And we're trying to stop him, if you recall, that everybody wants to stop Trump. And so there was well-funded. But remember, GPS didn't have anything to do with, I, I don't think Christopher Steele was, uh, was uh, working for him at that point. But anyway, what he was doing was he was looking for dirt on Trump all over the world. Now, Felix Sater was the go-between on Trump's dealings in Moscow, you know, that looked kind of dirty. But, you know, I mean, anything you do in Moscow looks dirty. Trump was trying to build a Trump Tower there. How much Felix Sater was had to give out, and I think they were going to give a, a large condominium to good old Vladimir if they built it. I don't think Trump wanted that out. I think he had a big floor for Vladimir. He was, so he had to sort of bribe his way around. And that's sort of unseemly. But really... The Republicans, of course, when they realized that the Trump train was rolling, they kind of lost interest, didn't lost their funding. So it really didn't start that way. And I'll tell you how I think it did start. It just so happened that GPS was there and GPS, I think Glenn Simpson knew what he could do to get a good job here. He's married to a woman named Mary Jacoby. Her name is important here. They were both reporters for the Wall Street Journal. And back in, I'm going to say, 2007, 2008, they did a lot of reporting for the Wall Street Journal on Manafort and his unsavory connections in the Ukraine. Nothing ever came of it. They never made a case on Manafort. I think everybody knew he's probably getting paid a lot, but the Justice Department didn't do anything with it. And Manafort skated, but Jacoby and Simpson, when their reporters got on this, so when this at some point, they get wind of what they need to do to get money. And that's my point here is how this thing started. I do believe that the red, that the free beacon is nothing more than a red herring. It turns out, of course, Simpson is a good guy for foreign reporting and so forth, GPS is. But it's a red herring as to what we've got here. It was very, very important because the beacon didn't do anything with Russian collusion, electoral collusion, that kind of stuff, a conspiracy between Trump and Putin. None of that came up, and uh, all this really intelligent stuff was not involved. So here's how I think it came up. Let me back up. Hillary Clinton has some serious problems starting in the summer of 15. Interestingly, Trump has just gone down the elevator uh, escalator a month or so before, and they have to open up a case because of congressional pressure on whether or not she has compromised her server by having the homebrew server. So that investigation is opened. Comey's got it. 
Now, Comey, although he's nominally been calling himself a Republican for a while, he hasn't been for some time. He's very much aligned with the Hillary forces, and he knows that there are two serious criminal investigations coming for Hillary, and Hillary knows that too. Hillary will become president, she thinks, if she can get out of these two criminal charges, both related to emails. One is her server. Was she keeping classified information in a grossly negligent way? And and did she do that? Is she guilty? Secondly, when her emails were subpoenaed by Congress, she decided, or her her underlings decided, they would get rid of 33,000 emails. The question was, did she, and they were destroyed after the subpoena came, and did she order those? And they had some poor guy that they knew had pounded the thing out, done bleach bit on it, and destroyed everything, and they had him dead. And the question was, were you going to go up the chain? Were you going to get him, indict him, squeeze him for the next people up the line? He had talked to Hillary's two lawyers, David Kendall and Cheryl Mills. But basically, Hillary was in big trouble if the law enforcement did their job that a junior guy could do. Anybody could do this. You, you indict this guy, Combetta, who d- did the destruction, just go up the chain, and you, you get everybody. Okay, that was a big thing for Hillary. So the FBI had two cases that could ruin Hillary. If Hillary got through those two cases, she would be elected president unless unless the 33,000 emails that were missing that they'd taken such care to destroy, any of those surfaced. She destroyed them not because she cared about how big her yoga pants were, but because they <laughs> likely indicted her on many crimes and doing things not only in Benghazi, which is why they originally wanted them, but can you imagine the emails that got her $145 million into the Clinton Foundation merely for the small little detail of giving Vladimir Putin 20% of the world's uranium supply that he uses as part of his strategy of energy, strategic energy warfare or strategic energy foreign policy. Right now, and I'm just going to digress one second, right now there are many nuclear power operators in the United States that need to buy their uh, uranium from Vladimir Putin, and he's got such a corner on it he can underprice everybody else, drive them out of business. He's got a monopoly on it now. All right, let's put that aside. John, just because we're, we're a little short on time here, the idea here is that Hillary Clinton needed to stir up this false collusion narrative to vilify Trump in order to distract or to make the FBI sort of get off her scent and start investigating Trump. Is that the idea? Yeah, at some point. At some point, it became clear that she defensively should get ready to do that, okay? And that was going to be because she was worried. Here's what she, she was worried about the October surprise. She was worried about an email dump, and she had to be ready to counter it by saying this is a Russia hit job. Okay, so that's where we are with Hillary. I, I think I finished there, and I'm sorry to go on, but I wanted your no, no, that's to, okay. to know what I'm talking about. Okay, so the next player in this drama, and we've got two of them now. We've got Steele, we've got Hillary, where he, she is. The third player is the referee, the decider our Justice Department, who's handling these two investigations and will ultimately handle the defensive investigation called Russia, we call Russiagate, the Russian collusion investigation, and that's James Comey. Now, James Comey, in the summer of uh, 2015, now sees what's up. He knows that if he can get Hillary out of these jams, he and the guys who do it with him are golden. They're going to get 
be high-flying for the rest of their lives. They're going to be get, getting juicy assignments when they go into private business. They'll be getting multi-million dollar intelligence contracts and all that stuff, the largesse that these intelligence agencies pay out to their people, the retired people, and so forth. Comey knew the system. He also knew that he was going to be a great hero. And he had his eye as well on higher office. He's a very egotistical guy. He's talked to people that I know about running for higher office. He's always been of that ilk and was very much a pro-Obama, anti-Trump guy. He was disgusted by Trump. His girls and his wife were so ardent pro-Hillary people, it's ridiculous. So in other words, his task, or at least to his underlings, was to carry water for Hillary. So they were to, I guess, go through the motions of investigating her private server situation. They didn't take notes during the investigation. They basically whitewashed that investigation. She gets off, and then they're supposed to devise this quote-unquote insurance policy uh, that we we, uh, heard about between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, uh, which is the the Russian collusion narrative. Right. And there are two aspects uh, to that. Okay, we'll we'll pick that up uh, on the other... Break, let's pick it up, yeah. Absolutely, and also, uh, this is now, it seems, uh, because of a declassification from... John Ratcliffe at the uh, department or the uh, director of national intelligence that the CIA alerted the FBI that Hillary was doing exactly this back in September of 2016. We'll pick it up with John O'Connor, the author of Postgate right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. John O'Connor is with us. We're unpacking the uh, Russiagate hoax, the Steele dossier, uh, the FBI's phony investigation, unwarranted, however you want to look at it. Um, And uh, we will keep John uh, over into the next hour, and we will take phone calls. Also questions from our YouTube live chat uh, after the uh, the top of the hour. So if you call in now... uh, we're not going to get to you until, as I say, the second hour. So just keep your powder dry. Have a listen to uh, more of what John has to say, and then we will get to your calls and also questions from the uh, the YouTube live chat. Now, we were talking, or I was mentioning the, um, the uh, declassification from the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, that the CIA alerted the FBI back in September of 2016 that there was intelligence showing the Russians believed Hillary Clinton was stirring up a false collusion narrative to vilify Donald Trump. Uh, first of all, what do you make that uh, of that? Is that more Russian disinformation, or is that uh, just, you know, dirty tricks by Hillary? Well, first of all, we know it's true. Uh, secondly, the CIA vetted that quite, quite thoroughly, and they uh, briefed President Obama on it, as well as Comey, I might add, and as well gave a criminal referral to the FBI on this on September 7th. So they had already vetted it and thought it was legit, because remember, if it's a good source they've got, they know what's coming out of Russia. If they have a good source, it's not like, you know, this is the second thing. The reason the FBI didn't do anything about it, Stroke, Peter Stroke, the assistant to Comey and McCabe, the three of them decided not to investigate on this foot. Why? Because this referral just told them what they already knew. They were already part of that very 
conspiracy that was going on. They were part and parcel of it. So it's a very inconvenient thing because there it is on paper. And Comey and McCabe had made a big effort not to have anything on paper that would get to them. So if you gave information to Comey, you always did it orally. McCabe tried to do that, although he couldn't escape like Comey could. But now you have something coming in documenting this, and at least until recently, (laughs) it was all classified and nobody knew about it. But the fact that they didn't do anything about it is because they they already knew about it. They were part of it, and that's part of my statement to you today, that they knew very well that they were part of it and had been part of it long before this thing came about. So that's where we are. Um, you had, uh, uh, so what, what, what I would say here, Richard, is uh, we have a situation in which, uh, okay, we, we've talked about what the needs of, of, of Hillary. Now let's talk about James Comey, what he does. Late 2015 and early 2016, he needs complete uh, loyalty of a den of thieves. He needs people that will do this conspiracy that I'm going to talk about and that will not yap and will go along with it and cover each other. Uh, It's very hard in the FBI to get a, a cabal of dishonest people because they're so honest. The FBI works so that the parts are interchangeable. You walk into an office and you can expect everybody that you're now with in Kansas City is going to be honest as the day is long. That's the way these guys are. But Comey went out of his way to get rid of people in headquarters, number one. He retired two guys. He reassigned a couple guys. He brought in McCabe, and he had rapid ascent from the field office where he was a high guy, but to headquarters, he was the number three and then quickly became number two. And people were stunned at how quickly McCabe got up there. He retired a couple guys, which you can do. You can push guys into retirement. But the point is he got people in there that were answerable to him. The investigations were very closely held. Now here's another thing. They were head, they were done out of headquarters, even in Watergate. Although Mark Felt was at headquarters and his top guys were at headquarters and they oversaw the investigation, it was run out of the field office. Uh, The field office is where the normal agents are and they spread out and they do all this stuff. Comey made this an unusual investigation. He put everything into headquarters. That's number one. Number two, you would think an investigation of Hillary would be a public integrity investigation. It wasn't. It was made into a uh, counterintelligence investigation. So he got his counterintelligence people. It allowed him to keep things secret and to claim that there's all kinds of confidential information that couldn't be uh, dealt with. We haven't seen a lot of it to this day, frankly, and because it's all undercover. Uh, but and just like Ratcliffe, just you know, declassified that. But it's highly unusual that both investigations, both Hillary's email, they call it mid-year exam, her email investigation and the Russian counterintelligence investigation, as well as the third one, which is this destroyed, which isn't strictly about Hillary, it's about her underlings that may lead to Hillary destroying the the server. All those were handled in this closely held way by just a few people. Comey, McCabe, Peter Stroke was um, elevated, and then they did something unusual, 
they took somebody from the, and this is a little bit in the weeds, he took somebody from the general counsel's office, which normally is in a separate office overseeing them, or legally, took Lisa Page, who strokes lover, and they assigned Lisa Page to Andrew McCabe. Now, I don't know if they knew they were lovers, but they're very tight. So you had stroke. Lisa, Lisa Page was right there with McCabe and did his bidding. So he's on top of the general counsel. He's ordering her around. You have Comey, McCabe. So you have this whole thing locked up with a few people that will do their bidding. Then they got a couple other people that they handpicked for the home office to be the regular investigative or case agents. So in this tight little group, now, if they wanted somebody to go do an errand out, outside, they had a 15-man team that was kind of regular guys, regular schmoes. But uh, the sensitive stuff was he- closely held. So that's what he did. And when you look at the Horowitz report of the Steele dossier, you will see that there's a flood of red flags uh, and things they didn't do. They didn't tell the court that they withheld. A ton of okay, I've got to jump in here because we have a. This was a short segment, John. We'll uh, we'll pick this did. up on. Okay, we'll okay. pick this up on the other side. John O'Connor, okay. Postgate, Deep Throats lawyer, back with more in a moment on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. So, uh, John, in, in March of 2017, uh, President Trump accused Obama of wiretapping Trump Tower phones. And, if, and he sent that out on a couple of uh, tweets, and he was uh, ridiculed and mocked and and uh, for, for doing that. But uh, And Obama, of course, President Obama said uh, that neither President Obama or any White House official ever ordered surveillance on any U.S. citizen. I suppose technically that's true, right? They have, they have plausible deniability, but the substance of what Trump was was alleging is correct. Is that is that fair to say? Well, yeah. First of all, Trump said they were wiretapping Trump Tower, and that's technically correct because you've got the three jump rule. Once you surveilled Carter Page. You got his emails and his phone calls, and if he called Steve Bannon, you could then uh, surveil Steve Bannon electronically. And if Steve Bannon called Corey Lewandowski, Corey Lewandowski called Trump. You get all those people, and you now, by getting Carter Page, he's just the door opener. Okay, so you're sur- you really are surveilling Trump Tower, even though the uh, the warrant didn't say surveil Trump Tower; it said listen to Carter Page. Then you get three jumps from there. And so essentially you did that. Now, wiretapping is an old phrase. It usually means putting something on a phone line. We don't have phone lines anymore. But really, that's what he means, electronic surveillance at Trump Tower. Yes, that was true. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Carter Page, and then we'll get into the FISA courts. And so Carter Page is this low-level advisor very early on in the Trump campaign. I don't know that he even met with with Trump, maybe he was in one meeting at most. Uh, why did the FBI focus on, why did they go after Carter Page? Well, he's the only possible link, and they never did. He never did meet Trump because he missed that one meeting where George Papadopoulos is shown. He was out of the country and couldn't make it. So he never met Trump. I don't think he ever talked to him, never talked to Paul Manafort. And the Steele dossier had him uh, contacting 
Paul Manafort that those two were the ones who were doing the funneling, and he never had talked to Paul Manafort, never had an email with him. Uh, but, yeah, but the reason they went for Carter Page is because Page had been for years back and forth between Russia uh, because he was a guy trying to do Russian oil deals. He's a Naval Academy graduate, straight as an arrow. Uh, and he, he, But because he had Russian connections, that's why Trump named him as a foreign policy advisor so he could tell the Washington Post the next day, in typical Trump kind of ad hoc, let's do something real quick. Okay, I'll name Carter Page to my foreign policy team. Look, he's from Russia. He knows Russian. Okay, I've got a foreign policy advisor. Okay, next question. So really, it was ne- it was all for show. He had really nothing to do with anything. And interestingly, Richard, uh, when the news started coming out, as Brennan and Comey and Steele started leaking things, especially the Yahoo News of Michael Isikoff, uh, Page quickly resigned because he didn't want to distract attention from the campaign. So by the time the FISA warrant was issued, uh, Carter Page had been out of the campaign for a month. Paul Manafort had been sort of pushed away because of the black ledger that the Clinton people got out of the Ukraine embassy. This Anna Chalupa got the black ledger showing he'd been paid. He's out. So the two people that are supposed to be the spokes of this conspiracy, the funnel, are gone. And the only justification they can give FISA court for why they're doing this at all is because they want to know, gosh, what the Russians up to. We want to know about Russia. We want to know their sources and methods and what they're up to. But Page is out of it. Page has nothing to do with it. But he did speak Russian. He'd been to Russia. And he'd been to Russia that summer which gave them the ability to just make out a whole cloth that he met with two guys named Igor Sechin right. and Igor Kivyekin. And a, ten, a tenuous link at best. You know, yeah. And, 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 and they said real quickly, they said that he had made a deal with them to get a brokerage fee on the sale of 19% of this Russian oil company, Rosneft. And that was sort of the crime that they used to tell the FISA court that this foreign agent was doing. So, so it's interesting because... It. So you have Carter Page. I mentioned um, uh, Sater earlier, Felix Sater, who who also was was painted as this shadowy Russian go-between, like Carter Page. And in both instances, they're both CIA assets. Right. Right. So and, we, and course, we see them turning their own people into Russian uh, Russian agents, even though they're their own assets. Well, right. And uh, Sater didn't have much to do with Russiagate, but Page certainly did. And they knew that he had been a CIA asset and the FBI lied to the FISA court about Page. They did not tell the FISA court that Page had been considered an asset of uh, an operational contact of the CIA, as is strictly what he was, and that he was deemed reliable, friendly, cooperative. And they also didn't tell the court that when they used a confidential source to get information from them, a confidential informant that Page said, I've never met Divyak, and I've never met in sessions I haven't seen in a few years. I never did any of this, and they never reported that to the FISA court. So the whole thing uh, sort of is, is a lot of smoke and mirrors, but that's why they used Sater, because Sater had been to Moscow and Page, and those are probably the only two guys that have been near Russia. Uh, or who know what Russia was. I mean, it, it was a seat-of-the-pants campaign by Trump, and the last thing he needed to do was hang around in Russia. And um, 
the the car the FISA court application, which was targeting Carter Page, uh, that was based on in large measure the Steele dossier, uh, which the CIA had already before the FISA warrant uh, before the FISA court hearings, the CIA had already told the FBI uh, this is all this is all political dirty tricks by Hillary. Uh, and yet that was not included in the FISA footnotes, I'm guessing, in the application, that the CIA said this is no good. Well, that's right. And Christopher Steele had already said the Sergi Million I talked about. He'd already, uh, he already said uh, that uh, Sergi Million was an embellisher and an egotist, and that the FBI had opened up a counterintelligence investigation of Sergi Million as being a, a suspected spy. I didn't mention that earlier. Everybody was a suspected spy. None of that was told to the court. And the court was not told that this was a Hillary campaign deal. McCabe especially fought tooth and nail not to tell anything to the court about the possible political motives, which he knew real well. And let me just say one thing, Richard. Remember that his wife, Jill, Andrew McCabe, his wife, Jill, had gotten $675,000 from Terry McAuliffe, who's Hillary Clinton's twin brother, to run for office in Virginia. She's a physician, but she's tied into the Hillary campaign. And McCabe fought tooth and nail to say that that wasn't a conflict. So he's staying on this thing through the Mueller investigation. And yet here he is tied in with Hillary lock, stock, and barrel. And so we have this tremendous, tremendous bias. They ignore all the contrary indications they should have told the court. Uh, Horowitz lists 17 things they didn't tell them, but I would, <laughs> I would say there are a few more. Uh, and, uh, and Horowitz down is, is very factual about it, but it's, it's a stunning. It's a stunning uh, indictment of Comey, McCabe, and their team. Unfortunately, Richard, Case Agent 1, whoever he is, and special supervising special agent, who's Joe Pienka, that's out here in San Francisco now, they're probably going to get indicted after the election. Whether they're going to get Comey or Stroke or any of those guys, I don't know. Right. Uh, and so far, we have one indictment. Want- we have one indictment. That was uh, the FBI lawyer, Kleinsmith, who, who basically changed the substance of an email uh, indicating uh, that that initially indicated that yes, Carter Page was one of ours. He's a CIA asset. He's friendly to us. Client Smith changed that for the FISA application. Basically, ignored that connection with Carter Page and the CIA. That's a one indictment we've come out with so far. Right, and he said, but he's not a something like, but he wasn't a source. That's how he changed it. So yes, um, and that that was. There at the end, when they finally got to him, uh, when they finally got enough information that Kleinsmith couldn't ignore it, the CIA was very frank about what uh, Page had done before. So, yes, um, this thing uh, was really, uh, you know, very dirty. And uh, you, you really can't make it up, Richard. So we have about a minute here but uh have we heard anything more uh, uh, cl- there was a, a plea bargain with Klein Smith i'm not sure what uh what he's likely to face in terms of a jail sentence but do we know whether he is he has uh, uh uh turned uh whether he's uh, cooperating what do we know well he certainly is a guy that i would look to turn uh and i would hope that he would uh 
he would do so. Now, I think what if I were Kleinsmith's lawyer, unfortunately, and I'll give you the bad news, Kleinsmith may be biding his time until he sees who wins the election, in which case uh, it's going to be like this guy who destroyed the bleach pit. Uh, they're going to let him off with nothing. They gave him immunity, and they didn't make him go up the line and get Hillary up the line and Hillary's lawyers. The same thing's going to happen with Kleinsmith if Trump loses the election. They will not make him roll over on anybody. He is a guy that maybe he's already rolled over. Maybe there's good news there. Maybe to save his uh, skin, he's already given him something. I hope that's true. Okay, uh, we've got to uh, we've got to run be, here. We're, yeah. Yep. We're up, yep. we're up against the top of the hour. We'll, uh, yep. we'll continue yep. hour two with John O'Connor unpacking the Steele dossier and the Russian hoax. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in a minute. Stay with us. <laughs> 